Welcome to the PEDS-NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, Assistant Professor at Catholic University of America, and today we're going to pick apart the 2021 guidelines published by the American Academy of Pediatrics on the evaluation and management of well-appearing febrile infants 8 to 60 days old. My explanation will certainly not be exhaustive of the 38-page article, and you should read it yourself to understand the nuances of their recommendations and the science behind them. You could even pull up the algorithms to follow along with the podcast. The citation is in the show notes. I'll wait. Before we get started on the new guidelines, I think it's important to understand the history of neonatal fever management because this informs our past, the problems, and frames where we're going. After realizing that hospitalization of febrile infants created unnecessary complications and risk, researchers and clinicians created prediction models to try to identify patients at high risk of a serious bacterial infection, or SBI, which could sometimes have varying definitions. There were other prediction models that looked for those at low risk of SBI. You've probably already heard of the Rochester Criteria, published in the 1980s, but this low-risk prediction model still resulted in extensive workup and hospitalization of infants under 28 days of age and unnecessary testing and antibiotics for infants 29 to 60 days. In the last decade, we had the publication of the Step-by-Step Approach, which recommends sequential lab testing and clinical criteria but significant provider variation has meant that these evidence-based recommendations often go unheeded in the real world. And so thankfully, the AAP realized that we clinicians needed a guideline promoted by our national authority on pediatric healthcare. So they developed the endorsed recommendations we'll discuss today. In order to make these guidelines evidence-based, they couldn't just take the same old data and approach from the 80s and 90s because those antiquated approaches misclassify SBI in our current day patient 23 to 32% of the time. They had to consider today's world and the differences we've seen in healthcare over the last three to four decades. Here are some of the things they use to impact their approach. First, pathogens. Infections are caused by different pathogens today than they were back then. We have vaccines against some of the scariest bacteria like Haemophilus influenza B tests for group B strep for pregnant moms in their third trimester, and reliable refrigeration to limit the prevalence of foodborne disease like listeria. All of this means that the biggest player in SBI is now the gram-negative bacteria E. coli, which is the leading cause of bacteremia and the second most common cause of bacterial meningitis in infants one month to 60 days. Also impacting their decision was testing. They highlight the fact that a CBC is less helpful at identifying serious bacterial infections when looking for things like leukocytosis or bandemia. Today, we have inflammatory markers like CRP and especially procalcitonin, which rises the fastest in bacterial infections. We're better at identifying pathogens too. PCR testing and automated blood cultures mean that we have answers to what pathogen is causing disease, sometimes in as little as an hour. And rapid antigen testing has emerged as a point-of-care tool even for primary care providers in the community. Lastly, there is a socioeconomic impact on unnecessary care of febrile infants. In addition to a hospitalization being stressful for families, 
the economic cost may not be justified. And we have minimal data about well-appearing infants with serious bacterial infections. They argue that multiple factors suggest the opportunity for us to, quote, safely do less. We have better data now from multi-center studies of diverse populations that allow more generalizable conclusions in research. But they note the importance of using clinical judgment and evaluating your individual patient. They cite their age-based algorithms as the key to achieving this and further remind the clinician that many factors will go into your decision-making, including perinatal and neonatal factors, parental dynamics, like what's their health literacy like? Do they have reliable phones and transportation? And what do they value in the care of their infant? Also consider the clinical setting, lab availability, and your own experience as a provider. There are inherent challenges when creating such a broad sweeping high stakes guideline. How do you define well-appearing and how might one identify this clinically? Providers often have a hard time doing this, especially before two months of age when the social smile develops. When asked to classify patients' illness, experienced residents and physicians put 25% of febrile infants in an intermediate, somewhere in between sick and well category. Other factors might twist your arm too, including the aforementioned provider experience, access to medical records, your clinical setting and ability to evaluate and monitor in a timely fashion, laboratory resources, and the aforementioned family dynamics. They encourage open conversations with families about risk versus benefit of testing and the need for patient-centered, collaborative decision-making surrounding treatment and observation. How did they split up this guideline? Invasive bacterial infections decreased drastically over the first few months of life, which creates the basis for the three age-based groups, 8 to 21 days, 21 to 28 days, and 29 to 60 days. According to the sources cited for their age brackets, prevalence of invasive bacterial infections even changes on a weekly basis after the first week of life. So they acknowledge that the age cutoffs are somewhat arbitrary. Because of this and the differences in study data that they used, the middle age group of 21 to 28 days was deemed necessary. In the same vein, newborns less than seven days old were intentionally not included in their guideline because of their unique risks and SBIs that present during this time in the neonatal period. Let's get started talking about the inclusion and exclusion criteria. The following must be met for the guideline to apply. One, the infant must be well-appearing. Sick-looking babies are at a greater risk of invasive bacterial infections. Number two, fever is defined as a rectal temperature greater than 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit at home or in a healthcare setting. Three, Babies must have been born at greater than 37 weeks gestation and less than 42 weeks gestation. And number four, they must fit in the age criteria and be at home. In other words, they're not inpatient for any reason. Focal bacterial infections or suspicion of HSV. And this next one is important. Infants with clinical bronchiolitis, regardless of their RSV test results. Also, infants who received immunizations within the last 48 hours, and a few others that surround a more medically complex infant. 
I think it's helpful to imagine yourself in the clinical setting evaluating this theoretical patient before we talk about the specifics of their age cutoffs. What will you do when this patient presents? Go back to your routine habits because this is what makes you a safe and competent provider. Start with a history. I like to gather the history of present illness first and get all the details surrounding their presentation. What's been going on that led to this moment where I'm standing in front of you right now? What medications or home remedies did the family try at home? Complete your review of systems to assess for other features of illness like diarrhea, vomiting, or poor feeding. Then gather a complete prenatal and birth history, listening intently for factors that might disqualify a child from being eligible for a well baby guideline. Maternal infections like STIs, gestational age, GBS status, delivery and complications, their newborn course and the timing of their discharge home. Has the child been well since going home with mom and dad? Finish up with a past medical history, surgical history, family history, social history, immunizations, and medications. Then do a thorough physical exam. Remember that it's important for us to complete both the history and physical before making decisions in order to prevent cognitive bias of premature closure. Listen for respiratory symptoms that don't fit the diagnosis of bronchiolitis. Assess for focal infections like otitis media, which doesn't necessarily preclude the patient from the rest of the pathway, but might steer your thinking. As we begin medical decision-making along the algorithms, I want to hit some high points. They recommend urinalysis and blood culture in every group. Note that I said urinalysis, not necessarily culture. You should send a culture if the UA shows either leukesterase on a dipstick, or greater than 5 or 10 white blood cells per high power field on microscopy, because UA in a febrile infant is 97 to 100% sensitive for UTI. But if the UA is normal, no culture is needed due to the risk of a false positive culture. Here's where the three age groups differ slightly. Our 8 to 21 day old babies need an LP in their workup, regardless of other studies. You can look at inflammatory markers, but they aren't necessary because this group will be treated with empiric antibiotics using ampicillin plus gentamicin, ceftazidime, or mirapenem, then hospitalized for observation, regardless of the result. Although using inflammatory markers for trending could prove helpful later on. If all cultures are negative at 24 to 36 hours and the baby is still feeding and acting well, you can discontinue the antibiotics. After that 36-hour mark, most of what grows in a blood culture is a contaminant anyway. But the patient will keep close contact with the PCP after discharge and require close follow-up. On to our shortest age group, the 22 to 28-day-olds. Again, you're going to start with a blood culture and UA. The one caveat here is that you could get a UA by a bag or a clean catch because we all know that little boys pee as soon as you pull away the diaper. But if the UA is normal, you're still going to need a cath or suprapubic specimen for culture, which could cause delays or long waits. But this is a nice option for those parents who want to minimize invasive testing. Next, you'll look at four inflammatory markers. Fever greater than 38.5 degrees Celsius 
an ANC greater than 4,000 to 5,200, CRP greater than 20, and or procalcitonin greater than 0.5. If procalcitonin is not available at your institution, use the presence of fever greater than 38.5 with the other IMs to guide your risk assessment. But remember that you should not use the white blood cell count to make your decision because this can be normal in babies who have invasive bacterial infections. If even one inflammatory marker is abnormal, the benefit of an LP is clear in this age group. If the inflammatory markers are normal, whether you obtain an LP is a gray area because there just isn't great data to confidently support that decision in one way or another. If you choose not to get the LP, you should admit the patient for observation with or without empiric antibiotics until the culture is negative. If you obtain the LP and it's normal, you're potentially able to offer home observation after empiric antibiotics with 24-hour PCP follow-up. This is where the family dependability and an open discussion come in. Do they want to avoid an LP and unnecessary antibiotics? but in turn, they're gonna to need to stay in the hospital for observation? Or do they accept invasive testing and empiric antibiotics with the option to go home with specific education on signs of deterioration and close follow-up? The cool thing about this is that follow-up is a loose term here, which could be a phone call or even telemedicine. But I may not offer home observation if social issues could interfere with the ability to monitor or follow-up. Like maybe the parents didn't appear to understand the gravity of the situation or they're showing a limited health savviness. Think about whether transportation or communication are shoddy, like they're in a rural area or they have phones that don't accept incoming calls. At the end of the day, you're the one who can steer these decisions based on the needs of the patient and family. Let's finish up our discussion of the guidelines with our 29 to 60 day old infants. Again, we need a urine sample. The committee's commentary on how to obtain this was far more favorable to bladder stimulation techniques to provide a non-invasive, instant gratification rather than waiting for a bag specimen. If it's positive, we still need that sterile specimen though. Also, get the blood culture and inflammatory markers. If both the UA and the inflammatory markers are normal, the child can go home without empiric antibiotics and follow up in 24 to 36 hours. If the UA is concerning for infection, but the inflammatory markers are normal, we should initiate empiric antibiotics, and these can actually be oral antibiotics. You can discharge the patient home and treat them as an outpatient. I usually give the first dose in-house so that I can make sure that they tolerate PO antibiotics and they don't need to be admitted for an IV medication. But if all goes well, you get to skip the LP and follow up with the UTI in 12 to 24 hours. The next part is the trickiest of the whole guideline, and it discusses what to do if their inflammatory markers are elevated. If any inflammatory marker is elevated, the concern for invasive bacterial infection increases, and we're in an if-then situation with four potential outcomes. If the child also has concerning CSF studies, then you're obviously going to give empiric antibiotics and admit. If you didn't or couldn't get CSF, 
then you should administer empiric antibiotics and choose whether to observe as an inpatient or at home. If the CSF is normal or enterovirus is positive and the UA is negative, then no antibiotics are needed and you can choose whether to observe the patient as an inpatient or at home. And lastly, if the CSF is normal and the UA is positive, then you should give oral antibiotics, like I said before, and choose whether to observe as an inpatient or at home. These if-then scenarios in the context of elevated inflammatory markers might seem complicated, but actually they indicate that this age group has the least risk of infection, and a staged approach to evaluating them can be best for limiting unnecessary and invasive testing, treatment, or hospitalization. And at the end of the day, it's best for the family to recover in their least restrictive environment, their home. The committee tried to make recommendations on paper about real-life babies. This is inherently difficult and often ends up taking a population-based approach to healthcare. The conversation constantly returns to a provider's aversion or tolerance to risk, the need for a clinical judgment, and a provider's own experience as considerations when applying the concept of this guideline to a real-life patient encounter. It's hard to be the one who makes decisions for someone else's precious child. This is a necessary caution, but I deeply appreciate the recommendations because I see how important it is to avoid that same provider variation that has plagued the management of febrile infants for decades. You need to both trust your gut and trust the science. This guideline does a fantastic job of cutting out the junk, explaining the science with objective data, and leaving you with fewer decisions where the family can actually get involved and give their input. It may seem complicated, but in fact, by taking out so many questions with their extensive review of high quality literature, it makes their recommendations so much more clear and worthy of our acceptance into practice. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the PEDSNP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. There is no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the PEDSNP. You can see show notes and references at www.thepeedsnp.com. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You're learning for the babies. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.